Each month, the Security Ledger podcast informs and entertains an audience of thousands of technology and information security professionals. If that sounds like an audience your company is trying to reach, consider sponsoring one of our podcasts. We offer per-episode sponsorships of our weekly podcasts, which feature news, analysis, and discussion of the most important cybersecurity topics of the day. Or you can commission a custom podcast to highlight your executives, researchers, and subject matter experts. To learn more, point your web browser to securityledger.com slash sponsor. This is the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast number 183. Uh, it's funny, I actually got a, uh, a message, an email from the CEO of Zoom uh, who wanted to talk about some of the research I did. I was like, can we do a signal chat? You know, because signal's like, you know, you're secure. And he just sent me back a Zoom link, and I was like, ooh, power move. You've just reported a major security vulnerability in the Zoom platform. Now the CEO of Zoom wants to chat with you via Zoom. What do you do? That was the position our guest this week found himself in. Patrick Wardle is a principal security researcher at the firm Jamf. In April, he made headlines for disclosing a zero-day vulnerability in the Zoom client, one that could have been used by an attacker to escalate their privileges on a compromised machine. But Wardle is even better known as one of the premier authorities on the security of Apple software, including its iOS and OS X operating system. He joined us in the Security Ledger studio to talk about his work exploring the security of Apple software and his recent forays into the Zoom client. Patrick and I talk about whether Zoom is really less secure than other web conferencing applications, about the future of Apple security, and about a hot date he had in Moscow. To start off, I asked Patrick to talk a little bit about himself and the work that he does at Jamf. Patrick Wardle, uh, I am a principal security researcher at Jamf. Patrick, welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you, Paul. Stoked to uh, talk nerdy with you about uh, all things Mac OS related. <laughs> Patrick, you're a researcher at the company Jamf. Tell us a little bit about what Jamf does. Yeah, so Jamf is a Mac enterprise uh, management solution that you know helps enterprise healthcare education systems uh, manage their their Apple devices. And um, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, you have a pretty sterling reputation as one of the preeminent uh, security experts, really, on the Mac platform. Um, talk a little bit about your background and how you got interested specifically in Mac-related security issues. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story behind that. Um, the short version is uh, it was formally employed by the National Security Agency, uh, the NSA. I uh, initially did some uh, malicious code analysis, so I was on the defensive side of the house analyzing attacks targeting U.S. government networks. So I was able to see some really sophisticated, interesting, uh, you know, non-public uh, malware exploits and attacks. I then transitioned to the uh, offensive side of the mission, and I, I can say basically I was creating uh, hacking capabilities uh, for the, uh, the U.S. government. Um, after a few years there, I left with some friends to uh, go into the private sector, and I wanted to be able to leverage my foundation skills. So the, the malware analysis techniques I developed, uh, my understanding of how uh, advanced 
sophisticated adversaries would target a system. But the majority of my research uh, and tools and capabilities were on the Windows platform. And so I wanted to find a way where I could still utilize the foundational concepts that I'd learned, but without stepping on any toes at the NSA, right? You don't want them to be upset at you. Let's <laughs> just leave it at that. Uh, so Mac at the time was kind of this uh, up and coming platform. Uh, you know, it's a personal computer. So there's reverse engineering, malware exploits, a lot of similarities, but it's a completely different system. So I felt very comfortable transitioning to that and being able to use my existing skills without as I mentioned, stepping on on anyone's toes. So uh, in retrospect, that was kind of a very uh, auspicious decision um, and, you know, kind of got in and started doing a lot of research and analysis before uh, Macs were as as prevalent as they they are today. But that was really kind of the motivation uh, of why I focused on Mac computers. So in a way, I'm forever grateful to uh, (laughs) to the NSA. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was it's interesting because for years and years the conventional wisdom around Mac OS 10 and Mac generally was uh, that you know cyber criminals fish where the fish are and that you know 90 something percent of enterprise and home PCs were running some version of Windows and you know Mac was this kind of tiny sliver of the pie and so why you know really waste your resources you know doing research and poking around in in you know that particular environment. But obviously that's changed quite a bit and particularly at, you know, startups, uh, technology companies. My guess is Mac is probably the the predominant operating system used now, right? Yeah, and that's another excellent point. And I think you hit the nail on the head where hackers are usually very opportunistic. So, you know, as you mentioned, Windows market share was a lot higher and still is, is fairly, fairly high. So a lot of hackers were spending their time and resources uh, finding vulnerabilities, creating offensive cyber capabilities for the Windows platform. Uh, but as Macs became more prevalent and more popular, we see hackers starting to kind of change their focus. I mean, there's there's several instances we see of Windows adware, Windows malware that has basically been ported or rewritten. Um, it's functionally equivalent, but now is targeting uh, the Mac platform. Um, and that's interesting. One of my favorite kind of case studies is uh, the an APT group associated with uh, the Chinese government was targeting certain, uh, I believe it was human rights activists, um, as they do. Security researchers kind of came in to help uh, protect the targets. And one of their suggestions was, hey, you know, switch to Mac. It's kind of a perhaps a more hardened uh, target or there's just less threats. Uh, and within, you know, six months or so, the Macs were getting hacked with zero day vulnerabilities, new implants. So it's just a great example that hackers and adversaries are able to find ways into you know, any system and, and, and Mac is really in some ways just another computing platform. The other point I really like to make is Apple, as we all know, uh, have an incredible marketing uh, department. And I, I always argue, I don't have facts to back this up, but I feel like it's true that, you know, I feel like they spend more money on advertising and marketing than they do on security because, I mean, security doesn't really sell, right? Whereas marketing does. And so even un- up till a few years ago, they had uh, information on their website saying, uh, Macs don't get Windows viruses. And that's technically true due to incompatibilities between the operating systems. But the average Mac user read that as, oh, Macs don't get virus. That was, you know, at least the subliminal takeaway. So the the downside to this is you have uh, Mac users who are 
I would say, naively overconfident. Uh, you know, they are not perhaps as cautious as they should be downloading random applications, clicking on random email links. So because of Apple's uh, marketing messages, you now have users that perhaps are easier targets because they are more likely to perhaps engage in, uh, as we mentioned, kind of unsafe cyber practices. So if I put on my black hacker hat and say, okay, I'm going to hack an organization, um, I am going to probably target the Mac users. I mean, yes, it's my area of expertise, but I think they'll be more likely to perhaps click on email links and ran, download random uh, applications and, and thus maybe in, infect themselves than perhaps their uh, the, the window Windows counterparts. So that's kind of an interesting uh, trend as well. And then lastly, like you said, especially in the technology sector, startup sector, well, and even the enterprise, we're seeing Macs become really prolific. Uh, a lot of the younger generation, you know, you look at any college classroom, all the computers are going to be Macs. And so as that that age group uh, graduates and moves into the into the enterprise, into the job market, a lot of them really want to use their Mac computers. And, and we Jamf, that's really almost come now like a, a hiring issue where, I mean, personally, like if I went to work for a new company and they're like, you have to use a Windows computer, like ugh, that wouldn't like sit that well with me. <laughs> it's like you got to wear bell bottoms or something. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, in the workforce, they're definitely really fond of Macs. So we see them becoming more and more prolific, which, as you mentioned, means uh, more attacks and just more interest by adversaries and, and hackers. And also, just one last point, a lot of the C-level execs are also using Apple devices, right? You know, So again, if you're a hacker targeting those, a company, those are actually the, the targets you want to go after anyways. Okay, so there's no doubt that Mac users feel like their platform is more secure, and there's no doubt that you know, the, in the corpus of malware out there, the most of it is for the Windows system, just historically. That said, is there anything inherent about, and we're talking about the latest versions of, you know, OS X and Windows, is there anything inherently more secure about Mac's product than Microsoft's product, aka Windows? That's another interesting question, Paul, because the answer to that question has kind of changed over time. So kind of out of the box back in the day, Mac OS systems or OS X systems uh, were, I would argue, more secure. They kind of had less running services. They were built on kind of this BSD foundational framework uh, and these components, whereas Windows was kind of like a piece of Swiss cheese from a security point of view. And then you had the famous Bill Gates memo. He's like, look, Microsoft, we're just getting wrecked when it comes to security. We really need to build security in from the ground up. And so Microsoft did a lot of very proactive steps, especially from a security point of view. Over the years, things like uh, having a bug bounty program, hiring external hackers and researchers, um, really ex engaging with the external research community, saying basically, we're going to do our best effort but we realize that we need your help. And so how can we work together to ensure that the operating system we're shipping is as secure as it can be? Apple, on the other hand, kind of rode their initial success for a long time. I would argue rested on their laurels. And, you know, we're not talking about iOS here. That's kind of a whole separate uh, discussion. But macOS, at least, I would argue the security of Windows eclipsed that. We just see Microsoft building a lot of very advanced exploitation mitigations into the operating system and really shipping very secure products. Now, Apple recently has started to improve. Um, you know, mm -hmm. you look at 
like notarization requirements on Catalina. Um, that's kind of a big step forward that will prevent a lot of the more basic malware attacks against Mac users. And then Apple also has some really powerful code signing mechanisms built into the operating system that moving forward will allow them to really lock down Mac OS more and more. And finally, Apple has shown that they are more willing to break compatibility and discontinue legacy items, which a lot of times weren't designed with as much security in mind, whereas Microsoft is very committed to maintaining, you know, very long-term compatibility. So Apple definitely has some benefits in that. Currently, though, you know, my personal opinion is the most recent uh, Windows operating system is more secure than the most recent Mac operating system. I mean, the other thing that I think of increasingly, because we we hear and, and read a lot more just about software and hardware supply chain, is that, you know, for the most part, uh, Apple still has a, you know, kind of they own the complete stack. They both make the operating system and build the device that it runs on. And I wonder if, if that gives them a security advantage overall, just that you know, the hardware is there and the software is there. Whereas with Windows, obviously, it runs on a lot of different platforms. Uh, definitely. And I think that's an excellent point. We see that especially in iOS where they really control, uh, especially a lot of the hardware level chips, um, kind of the customizations they do to the ARM chips where they build in some low level exploitation mitigations into the chip level. Uh, that's very powerful. So we're going to probably start seeing that on Mac OS as well. But that definitely does give Apple an advantage because I would argue the most powerful uh, security mechanisms you can build are ones that are at the hardware level. So uh, Apple's progress in that arena, especially in the ARM chips, is is an unparalleled. So I think we'll likely see MacBooks coming out in the near future with those ARM-based chips, um, which, yeah, will have benefits from like, uh, you know, battery life and, and power consumption. But I think we shouldn't underestimate the huge security improvements that perhaps we will gain by uh, having those hardware level exploitation and malware mitigations um, in those new systems. So I think that's a, a very good point and example of where uh, Apple might have a, a leg up uh, because they control the entire uh, products from hardware to software. I mean, you you talked about Apple's other distinguishing characteristic as a corporation, which is their intense secrecy about pretty much every aspect of their company and its operation. And in contrast to Microsoft, it often has been very difficult to get straight answers out of Apple about uh, even things like how much money they spend on security research, you know, who they have working on research. I mean, you can kind of, if you know people, you can kind of trace the lines and figure out who's working there. But it's a very much of a black box in terms of what is going on from a product security standpoint within the company. Again, that's it's not just security. It's like everything about the company is is hard to hard to discern. What sense do you get about what is going on within Apple insofar as their investment in product security and their focus on it? Has there been some equivalent of the trustworthy computing memo that's come out or um, or what? I, I like that you highlighted the fact of kind of that, that secrecy, which I think is, you know, from one angle, it's great, right? You know, it's like, oh, here's the new iPhone, new features. Like, it's kind of cool to be surprised and like, you know, capture that market buzz. But from a security point of view, I think the less transparent you are, the, you know, it's going to have a negative impact. It's almost like security, well, security in a way. Um, and we see that time and time and again, where, you know, Apple will release maybe a new security mechanism, but they never engage with the external research community. Um, and so a lot of times maybe that security mechanism has some flaws that if they were more transparent or open sourced it, perhaps those flaws would have been found uh, earlier in the development cycle. Uh, same with just with engaging with external security researchers. I mean, 
Apple now finally has a bug bounty program for macOS, but that took years to, to whereas essentially every other company who, you know, was running their software on billions of systems already, already had that. So again, that's kind of an example. To answer your question, though, Apple really does value security and privacy. And uh, I think that they have an incredibly strong security team. They've really hired some of the top minds in the field. But it's interesting because when those researchers go and work there, it's basically this black box where you don't hear about them. So I always thought they like took their family hostage or something like the, yeah, the extent yeah. of the, of we the, I that. mean, I don't know what that NDA has in it, but it's powerful medicine, whatever it is. And so it's <laughs> problematic because, you know, I, I really believe that talking to users, connecting well with the external security community is really the best way to tackle the security problem versus hey, let's go in a room with a bunch of smart people. And yes, we'll design some very powerful security mechanisms, but um, you know, eventually we're not, there's going to be something we, we, we didn't you think need of. need those so, many eyes, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I really think that's more driven by Apple's corporate policy. You know, you talk to the individuals at the security team. Again, I have utmost respect for them. They're doing incredible work and they, you know, will, uh, you know, sometimes say, hey, look, I wish we could collaborate more. And like, I would love to be able to work together on this. But, you know, we just company policy is, is, is we can't. So I think Apple general policy of secrecy, which, you know, for their products is fine. I think, though, that has unfortunately also spread into their security mindset. I think that's an area where, you know, I wish they would really be more transparent and more open because talking to any security professional in any, you know, cybersecurity aspect will generally agree that, you know, collaborative, transparent work, joint work on security is really the, the way to go. So let's shift gears a little bit. Um, so you were in the news recently, very recently, in fact, for some research you did on the Zoom platform. Talk to us about uh, the, the work you did on Zoom and given that everybody is now using Zoom to as a lifeline to the civilized world, what should we know about the uh, security of the Zoom platform? Yeah, so Zoom was interesting. I think it was a great example of a product that really prioritized usability, user friendliness uh, versus security and, and privacy. And in a way, you almost can't blame Zoom, right? They're kind of the Silicon Valley startup. And really, the, you know, when you're. Are secure- they a Silicon Valley startup, though, Patrick? Really? <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. Um, but uh, in that context, taking VC money, let's just go with that. Um, you know, the goal is obviously grow your user base. And the way you do that is by creating a user-friendly product that's, that's easy to use, right? Security is not a selling point, at least initially. We then had this uh, worldwide pandemic and Zoom's popularity skyrocketed. Um, and, you know, as we mentioned, anytime a product becomes more popular, there's going to be hackers, security researchers uh, looking at that. So one of my friends uh, on Twitter kind of made some observations about the Zoom installer that were kind of odd. And, you know, I was already getting invites for Zoom meetings with various customers, uh, you know, in parallel. I said, okay, well, I should take a quick look at this product that I'm installing on my computer to make sure I'm not opening up an attack vector. Um, And also, hey, you know, it's becoming really popular. Again, its priorities and focus seem to be more on usability versus security. So there's probably going to be some stuff. So I started poking around and within a few minutes, I just found a few few flaws. So I looked specifically at the Mac client. Uh, My research was focused specifically on the installer, the, the, the native client for 
macOS. So the first bug I found, and this is kind of a well-known attack vector, uh, basically what happens during the install or an upgrade process, uh, the Zoom would invoke this uh, deprecated Apple API to perform privilege actions. And this API is well-known to be riddled with security flaws. It's not recommended to be used. And basically, since they were using it uh, in a specific way, incorrectly, it opened up a local privilege escalation vulnerability. So in a nutshell, the installer would run a script out of a temporary directory that was writable, readable by any user on the system, but it would execute that with root privileges. So this means a local unprivileged attacker or piece of malware that was already on your system that wanted to elevate their privileges to root, kind of, you know, super user, the highest level of privileges, they could just uh, piggyback along this Zoom installer upgrade, inject some malicious commands into this temp script, uh, again, since it was writable by anybody, even with basic privileges, and then these commands would be executed uh, as root. So a very kind of nice uh, logic flaw. in, in and, and great, because Zoom is going to be on just pretty much any any uh, endpoint system that you that you happen to own. There's a really good chance that, that the Zoom client's going to be on there. Yeah, exactly. So definitely uh, an attack vector there. The other bug was kind of more interesting, and I think actually maybe more impactful, at least from a, a privacy point of view. So looking at the way that Zoom was designed, um, modern apps on iOS can opt into something called the hardened runtime, which is a compiler level security mechanism that Apple makes available to third-party developers. So kudos to Apple. It's a very powerful uh, protection, and it basically protects applications from malicious code uh, injecting or subverting the application. And that's important because on recent versions of Mac OS, things like accessing the mic or the webcam require explicit approval from the user. So obviously, once an application has been granted that access, you don't want another piece of malicious code to be able to inject or subvert that application to piggyback off that user-approved access. So the issue was Zoom had a specific exception that opened them up to that exact attack. So the attack scenario would be a piece of malware somehow gets onto a Mac system. The user has Zoom installed. It's able to access the mic and the webcam because obviously that's what Zoom is used for. The malware would equally like to access those devices. Uh, we see a lot of Mac malware, for example, trying to turn on the webcam to spy on users or some more advanced cyber espionage type Mac malware trying to turn on the microphone to basically turn the device into a room capture audio device. Again, you imagine your uh, spy agency, you've hacked the IP's laptop, you turn on the mic, you can hear everything that's being said. Like that's a very, very appealing uh, capability. But on Mac OS, as we mentioned, there are now these prerequisites where the user has to approve. So with this attack, a uh, piece of malware or a local attacker, again, could leverage Zoom's access to the mic and the webcam because of the way Zoom was designed and inject some mal malicious code into Zoom application, which would then inherit Zoom's access, meaning then that malware could access the mic or the webcam to listen in and record Zoom sessions or at arbitrary times execute Zoom in a background invisible state the operating system would still see its Zoom wanting to access the mic and the webcam, even though there's malicious code that's been injected into it. And so that gave the avenue for 
attackers or malware, then the way to access the mic or the webcam uh, with no alerts to the user. So again, a kind of interesting attack scenario, especially from uh, a privacy point of view. You know, one question, because obviously there's been a lot written about Zoom vulnerabilities. And obviously, as you know, uh, this is a this is a kind of dynamic that exists within information security, which is, you know, information security researchers like yourself are very interested in platforms that everybody's using. And so, like you said, as Zoom, I think, had a 10, 10x increase in users from like 20 million, you know, to 200 million uh, in Q1, you know, people, people got interested and curious. That said, is it your expectation that the types of things you found in Zoom are, are not present in Zoom competitor applications? Or are some of these kind of, you know, fast and loose practices really designed to make these things kind of very easy to set up and deploy? Um, are they likely to be exist in one form or another in, you know, your WebEx and GoToMeeting and, and you know, LogMeIn and some of these other platforms that basically do the same thing that Zoom does? Yeah, so if you look at usability and security, I always like to kind of place them on this imaginary line, this kind of linear scale, and and usually those are opposite ends. And so if you have if you look at uh, competing products or Zoom specifically, it's really what was prioritized. Not to say that they are inherently at conflict with each other, but generally the easier something is to use, the less secure it is now. Uh, and it's funny because and Zoom, I, we should say, is really easy to use. <laughs> it's funny because to kind of circle back to the Zoom issues and vulnerabilities, uh, Zoom did a really good job fixing those within a day. So kudos to them. They also kind of had their own, uh, you know, Bill Gates memo moment where they said, hey, we're focusing all our engineering researches na- resources now specifically on security and privacy, not new features. Amazing. Uh, they also brought in, you know, external security researchers. Uh, they're going to expand their bug bounty program, uh, almost do a complete 180 and prioritize, prioritize security and privacy. So get back to your question about, you know, competitors. I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the other more startup-y type uh, solutions or competitors would have similar flaws or issues. Because again, their general priorities are just increasing the user base and making incredible, incredibly usable product. Uh, whereas if you look at something from, you know, Microsoft, I believe, you know, Teams or, you know, maybe even Google Hangouts, those kind of things, those are products that are, are, are created by, I would, I would say more mature companies, companies that have been in this game for a long time and realize the impact of security and also have the teams and the security minded developers. Because, uh, you know, writing code and writing secure code are two different things, right? It's like you have to have kind of this hacker mindset while you're writing the code or have a team within the, within the organization that can red team or analyze the application, do source code audits, reviews. I'm sure previously this isn't something that Zoom uh, invested in because that's a very costly endeavor and also does slow down uh Getting to market, which again for a startup like getting to market fast is you know how you yeah. billions. Yeah, this is this is not a problem as I'm sure you know, not a problem unique to Zoom or this is a problem that is endemic in startup culture, right? Hundred percent. And so I think this is just a great example. Um, yeah. But you know, not to pick on Zoom too much. I mean, they do what the market demands, right? If they were to spend six months developing a new product or new version, rather, and you know, then they went to their customers like we didn't we didn't change anything, but it's more secure. Like prior to the this pandemic, like users wouldn't have cared about that. You know, they're like, where's my 
and emojis and where are my like virtual background and like, you know, users demand those features. Users don't care about security that much, at least initially. So to what, um, you know, I would argue customers um, were prioritizing. So, you know, it's kind of this interesting scenario where, um, you know, you have the Silicon Valley angle, the user angle, and, and the end result, unfortunately, is a product that uh, may be completely insecure. Okay, so if you get a Zoom invite now, uh, what do you do? I accept. Uh, it's funny, I actually got a, uh, a message, an email from the CEO of Zoom uh, who wanted to talk about some of the the research I did, and I was like, "Can we do a signal chat?" You know, because signals like you know, more secure. And he just sent me back a Zoom link, and I was like, "Ooh, power move!" Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, of course. So, I, and I was again, this was kind of a very appreciative. He reached out. We talked about some of their security improvements. Uh, so again, it's really good to see them really, I think, turning a corner and now focusing uh, on security and privacy. But to answer your question, um, you know, I think Zoom did a great job fixing the vulnerabilities. I think for everyday use, it's fine. Uh, you know, so I will get on Zoom meetings. I would say, though, if you're like a, a government organization or an enterprise that's talking about very sensitive information, you know, maybe use a product that's from a more mature company because even though Zoom has, I think, done a great job fixing a lot of their bugs, I think there's some tech deck that they have uh, incurred just by not focusing on um, security and privacy throughout. And the myriad of bugs that myself and these other security researchers found were very low-hanging fruit, let's say. They're, they're easier, easy bugs to find. It's very kind of surprising that they were almost there. So there's probably other bugs that will be found and Zoom will patch them quickly. I feel like Zoom's still kind of getting up to speed where hopefully a product maybe from a company like Microsoft, and I haven't specifically looked at the Microsoft product, but more just saying like likely it was designed with maybe more security in mind. But, you know, for the average user, Zoom is, is great. And, you know, the virtual backgrounds are fun and it has great audio and video. And so, you know, go Zoom. Just set a password for your room so you don't get, you know, Zoom bombed or whatever. You are an expert in, you know, security in the, in the Mac OS and Mac-based threats. What trends are you seeing in Mac malware and threats to Mac system? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, I don't believe we'll ever see as widespread a pandemic, uh, use that in the, the cyber terminology, on Mac as we do on Windows. I think Mac really had the benefit of general security of operating systems evolving. And by the time Macs became very popular, a lot of built-in security mechanisms were already very popular. So in terms of trends, you know, I think one thing is we'll actually see a downward trend perhaps in adware and malware that traditionally has gained access to Mac systems by users essentially infecting themselves. So the way the average user gets infected is, uh, you know, they will download a pirated application. They will be tricked into installing what they think is a flash update, which will obviously be a piece of adware or malware. Uh, maybe clicking on what they think is a PDF document in an email that's actually a malicious application, essentially infecting themselves. In Catalina, Apple introduced this concept of notarization. And basically it says before software is allowed to run on macOS, it has to be validated by Apple themselves. So what developers have to do, and I write a lot of uh, security tools for Mac users, so this is something I have to do as well, send the binaries to Apple. Apple basically scans them and then puts essentially their stamp of approval on them. Obviously, Apple's not going to approve malware and, and adware, generally speaking. So this basically shuts down a large attack vector 
where now even if the user is tricked into clicking on these links, and users will do this, right? We're all human. We make mistakes. But now the operating system will refuse to run that malicious code because it hasn't been blessed by Apple. So I think this will really shut down a lot of the more basic attack vectors. What we're going to see is we're going to see attackers transition to more sophisticated attacks, where now in order to get code running on the system, you have to have a vulnerability and an exploit. Uh, And there's still lots of these kind of uh, bouncing around. Uh, I just gave a, a talk uh, now about a month ago, in, and it was a really nice macro bug that someone had found targeting uh, Office products that run on macOS. Basically, open the document, the macros would be automatically executed. What I was able to find was a, a sandbox escape and then a bypass of this new notarization feature. So that would be an example there where an attacker could package up their, uh, their malware in this malicious Office document. And if the user opened it in uh, Microsoft Office product uh, on on Word, which is actually fairly common in the enterprise, it could use the exploit to uh, bypass, to sidestep these new security mechanisms and still persistently infect uh, the macOS. Of course, that requires a higher level of sophistication and now requires on exploits to gain access to uh, Mac systems. So I think just the amount of malware and adware will be reduced because Apple has been really <laughs> kind of shutting that down with notarization. But I think we will see more sophisticated attackers and attackers in general now trend more to utilizing zero-day exploits or recently patched exploits to to target Mac users. Final question is I want to talk to you about uh, Objective-C. Um, that's C as in ICU, not uh, C as in the programming language C, uh, which is a organization that you started to kind of foster development around tooling and, and other stuff for Mac security researcher uh, research. Talk a little bit about Objective-C. Yeah, so Objective-C is a project I'm very passionate about. Kind of has an interesting story how it all began. Uh, I get a call from one of my friends. Uh, I'm, lucky, I'm lucky enough to live in, in Hawaii, and my friend was a surfboard shaper. And he's like, my Mac has got infected. It's got all these pop-ups. And this was kind of right at the beginning when I was getting into Mac research. So I was intrigued, went to his house, looked at his system. And yeah, he had all these pop-ups and alerts. Obviously, his system was infected. And I said, okay, if this was a Windows system, I would grab a sysinternals tool and specifically the one that shows me what's persistently installed because malware tries to persistently install itself. And then I just find that piece of malware, adware, and delete it. So I Googled router and it just wasn't a tool to do that on macOS. And I was like, that's that's odd. That's surprising. So I told my friend, hey, you know, give me a little bit. I'll come back. You know, went home, spent about a day just putting together this basic script, Googled like how to persist on Mac. And there was some research uh, based on that, wrote like kind of a, this Python script that I'm embarrassed about, but you know, the, it would enumerate uh, persistent locations on your system and showed you what was installed there. Took it back to his house and sure enough, it didn't cover the, the source of the infection, which was uh, some adware. And, you know, I, I, I joked, I said, you know, you should probably stop going to these all, all these uh, shady adult websites because <laughs> How do you know? know? <laughs> Malware. Uh, so we were able to remove the adware. He gave me a great discount on a board he shaped for me. So I was super stoked. But that really opened my eyes to the fact that there was this lack of just, I would say, security products or security utilities for Mac OS. So what I kind of did is I began on this endeavor, just writing uh, 100% free, largely open source security tools, um, largely to protect my Mac systems, um, but then also to share with the community to foster uh, just awareness. I just, you know, kind of 
sharing is, is caring. So uh, I've written a handful of tools from uh, free open source firewall to uh, this tool, knock, knock, which I just mentioned that shows, you know, shows what's persistently installed on your system. Another tool that is kind of neat is called do not disturb. Uh, it'll tell you if someone opens your laptop. Uh, the, <laughs> the inspiration, I'm laughing because this is a hilarious but true story. Uh, I was in Moscow for a conference and I was traveling with a, a laptop. I brought a burner laptop, which is kind of like a, you know, a laptop just used for travel. But I remember I, <laughs> I hopped on Tinder as one does in Moscow and I met <laughs> a beautiful Russian lady and she was very like assertive. Like she messaged me first and said, you need to take me to this restaurant at 6.30 on Wednesday. And I was like, all right, when in Moscow, we go. And I remember at dinner, uh, I left my laptop in my hotel room and I'm talking with her and I was like, what do you do? And she's like, I work for the Russian government. And I was like, wow. She's like, I, you know, I'm in law. I train diplomats before they go to foreign countries for work. And I was like, wow. I was like, I, you know, appreciate your honesty. And you know, so I assumed from the start that she was kind of shady, but I'm putting there. I'm like, really? You used to work at the NSA? Wow! What a coincidence! I work for the Russian government. Uh, I was like, okay, you know, this is how Russians build connections. You know, they they build these personal relationships, and and so you know, I was very cautious and understood that. But at the same time, I was thinking, wow, my laptop's back at the hotel. If someone wanted to get access to that, physical access is always the best way to gain access to a device. While I'm busy out at dinner, you know, they could be popping in the hotel room and I would have no way of doing. So kind of the inspiration for this do not disturb tool kind of plays off the do not disturb card you hang on your hotel room was from that uh, that date in Moscow where I said, okay, I just want a utility that will alert me via my phone, uh, you know, if someone opens my laptop to, you know, try a password attack or power it on to plug in a USB stick that has an exploit. I want it to you know, basically in the background, send me alert on my phone so I can get alert if someone's messing with my laptop. Uh, so I haven't caught any Russian spies yet, but uh, I did get a, I did get an email the other day. You know that somebody did try and get into your laptop, right? Like, yeah, hundred percent. Well, that's why I take yeah, a burner. <laughs> Have you, now, do you know the story of, of uh, how Mimic Hats ended up as open source? No, <laughs> it, it's the same story. Like Benjamin went to a conference in Moscow that I can't remember if it was a Kaspersky conference or something like that. And was having, sh- you know, the Wi-Fi was all shitty and went down, left his laptop just to go down to the front desk and say, hey, can you, you know, my Wi-Fi is terrible. Can you fix it? And they were like, yes, yes, you know, stay here, stay here and we'll fix it. And he was like, no, nah, I'm not saying stay here. Went back up to his room and actually caught the guy at his desk, like trying to log into his laptop and was like, uh, and the guy was like, oh, I'm sorry, a wrong room and like kind of hurried out. Um and and then so he was like okay that's super sketchy and then i guess like he went and gave his presentation on mimicats and basically after the presentation like they just straight up came like some big goon came up to him after the after the talk and was like you will give us the source code now you know <laughs> Like they weren't even going to like try and be stealthy about it. They were like, you are going to put the source code on this USB. And he was like, oh, okay. And so then was like, you know what? I just gave it to the Russians. So I might as well open source it. (laughs) That's incredible. Well, it sounds like they've uh, upped their game and now are involved. uh, (laughs) But you had a lovely date. You had a lovely date. And I'm sure she was charming. Very memorable. So, um, (laughs) 
Hilarious. So the the inspiration from the tools come from very uh, from a variety of sources. <laughs> you know, friends are surfboard surfboard spies in Russia. Um, but the idea is the same, and that is just to create uh, open source uh, security tools for free that uh, Mac users who care about their security can in- install. Um, I also publish a lot of, of research and blogs. And, and then briefly, just to mention one last thing, we also organize a free Mac security conference called Objective by the Sea. And Objective by the Sea is the world's only Mac security conference. And we have kind of the top uh, speakers from around the world, you know, people from Google Project Zero, from the um, jailbreak scene. We do some iOS talks as well. Uh, come together and uh, at a great location. Uh, we've done Mac Maui twice and Monaco as well. It's got to be, you know, on the sea. And uh, again, the idea is, you know, not so Hampton the, Beach in New Hampshire as well, Patrick. You might yeah. consider that. <laughs> there um, is surfing yeah. there. Oh, oh, wow. See, now, now we're talking um, to have, have this conference. Um, and we also uh, are able to raise money for charity through uh, merchandise sales. Um, so, again, it's just an example of bringing security researchers together. Uh, Apple shows up, which is great. They haven't given a talk yet. I've always begged them. I'm like, guys, you can talk about anything yeah right? share yeah. yeah right tell, tell us what you're doing and like how we can help you so uh, eventually maybe we'll, we'll get there patrick it's been a lot of fun talking to you i really appreciate you coming on and talking to us on security ledger podcast thank you it's a pleasure uh big fan so it's kind of awesome to, to hop on here and chat um you know i would be stoked to come back uh, i feel like we have lots more to talk about <laughs> in the in the future we're always happy to have you on and uh, and absolutely, we'd love to have you back on talking again. Patrick Wardle uh, of Jamp, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you for having me on. Patrick Wardle is a principal security researcher at the firm Jamf. Jamf.